there are so many needs with general populations that come with the job. I think a lot of the old-fashioned values of librarianship are core values of service and charity and advocacy, information being free, like that is just, that's consistent. But I think in the digital age, um, librarians are finding that their skill set is infinite. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's Andy. She's a librarian and supporter of the Internet Archive and Open Library. She's our guest for today's show. I'm Nick. I am the volunteer communications lead at the Internet Archive's Open Library, where our mission is to make knowledge and books accessible to all humanity. Andy, she's going to be talking about digital intimacy in today's show. Also, she'll be talking about humanity's role in critical information literacy and our machines and algorithms obligated to help us consume literature more mindfully. She'll also touch on how does technological innovation affect the purpose of librarians? I am really excited about this podcast, the Open Library Community Podcast. We will have a range of guests from creatives to artists to writers, to people who are working on advancing literacy, to people who simply want to share parts of their culture and encourage and inspire others. What's really cool is this weekend I had a chance to, to read a post on the Twitter of Internet Archive about worker bees and how they secrete wax at different times of their life. It's pretty interesting and, and you might be thinking well what does whack or bees have to do with libraries well if you really think about it, I remember as a kid my mom and dad both were librarians when I was growing up so you know I was the kid who was walking into the house from getting out of the car coming from the library with uh, my allotted full amount of books like I go in and say how many books can I have if, if the librarian said oh, okay so you can take out 15 books today then then I I had as many as I could get plus the, the books at home have you ever done that it's like okay I got one two how many I got no I, I lost one but I think I can find it but I'll count that I had like books everywhere but what I noticed as a child is that the librarians would have a little container, this little white container of, you know, wax and, and they would just sort of swipe it and use it to make it easier for them to to grab a slip or the ticket that they would put in the card sleeve in the back of the book. Do you remember those days? Even librarians would have thimbles, some on their thumb or their, their index fingers. So they I think maybe they wouldn't get paper cuts. And, and so I bring that up to say that we have come a long way when it comes to librarians, especially in today's digital age. I'd say that, you know, there are some librarians out there who probably haven't used wax in a long time. I, boy, I think that's be something to cool to chime in about in this conversation is when's the last time you've used wax? on library books. I mean, it's, it feels like in this digital age. And so these changes are something that we're going to be talking about in today's podcast. It, it took me becoming an adult to respect the role of librarians, because even though two, my, my mother and father were both librarians, my parents didn't take the time or I'm not sure if they felt it was you know, they were supposed to 
to tell me what exactly does a librarian do? I thought, you know, you just sort of go into the library and you get your books and it's just this person standing there behind the counter and, and that's their job and that's it, that that's it. But it's so much to the role of the librarian, which I am excited about this episode. But I, it's going to be really eye-opening for people who really don't know what librarians face and the challenges that they face when it comes to today's digital landscape. That's what we're here to do on the Open Library Community Podcast. We're bringing people together to share different stories at the intersection of culture and literacy. So you're invited. Find a nook somewhere comfy and let's get to the show. So, Andy, thanks for coming by the show today. I'm curious in regards to the C word, COVID-19. I'd love to know what's been on your heart and how are you doing? Thanks for, well, that's that's a great opening line. Um, like many people, I've been sort of, I think, I think we're used to the changes that we have in the world now. Like I'm used to it, but I'm not thrilled. I think what I'm experiencing, um, like many people, is a sense of complete displacement. And discombobulation, not sort of how did this happen anymore, so much as what kind of a life am I going to build after this? I mean, I'm getting very meta since you asked. <laughs> I think what I've noticed is for me personally, my cell phone has become, or my, my devices have become empathetic devices. By that, I mean, they're not only just tools I use now for tasks, but at the beginning of the pandemic, particularly a year ago, they really are a means of connection. To other people. And I didn't realize how crucial technology was going to be until we were hit with this. I don't think anybody really could have predicted how digital things like digital intimacy and digital connection became sort of like so crucial that uh, people didn't realize how much they were depending on their device. It sounds like you're speaking to thoughts of what life was like prior to the pandemic, COVID-19, what your life is becoming now and what your life will be. How do you manage those thoughts? What is that like? That's a great question. I think tomorrow is now. I'm trying to, I'm trying to repurpose my uncertainty as anticipation. Think of it as a challenge and not an obstacle. Um, there's, a, there's a book called The Obstacle is the Way. I'm paraphrasing really poorly, but basically the idea is that you take it, you take an obstacle and you turn it into the means by which you thrive. Mm. You can, you can, you can turn your mind around. So I think people are throwing around words like mindfulness and um, global, like global consciousness. But I really believe that that's something applicable here because I feel like we have a lot more time, not time, but a lot more opportunities to think mm -hmm. because there's a lot more isolation. And maybe people would like disagree and say, no, actually, now that I'm stuck at home with my kids, you know, and I'm homeschooling and I'm doing everything for my family and I've got this, this and this. I don't have time to think about anything. It's, it's road. So um, like many people, I feel both ways about it. You know, I feel really torn. Mm. <laughs> I feel like we're in tomorrow, but I also feel like it's like a gamble. Like who knows what this is going to be like. 
had you asked me years ago when I was around maybe three years old or five years old or even 10 or maybe even older to describe the work of a librarian, I would not have been able to tell you other than, hey, you know, it's the person that's going to let me into the movie room next Saturday or, you know, it's the person that tells me to sh be quiet. I grew to learn that the role of librarians carries great responsibility. Now you tack on the digital era. I can only imagine what those responsibilities look like now. Andy, I'm curious, what's it like to be a librarian in the digital age? Strange, because um, we're not custodians anymore. We're collaborators. We're advocates. We're anything but shushers, you know, like... Mm. <laughs> I think a lot of the old-fashioned values of librarianship are core values of service and charity and advocacy, um, information being free, like that is just, that's consistent. But I think in the digital age, um, librarians are finding that their skill set is, is infinite. <laughs> you know what I mean? Having, that they have to, because you're basically developing with the needs of your community um, in tandem. So you have to figure out what those are like on the job a lot of the time. And um, even a lot of these things are not predictive. So you really have to be savvy and kind of like flexible, adaptive, like willing to experiment, creative thinking, right? Like things we don't associate with. I'm, I'm being, you know, I'm, I'm cheapening it a little bit, but it, we don't associate that necessarily with traditional modes of librarianship. It's all different. A significant aspect of the work at Open Library and Internet Archive involves open source and open data, which Andy, you're familiar with. Though I'm curious, what's your perspective on the pace of today's technological advancements in comparison to the evolution of the role librarian itself? <laughs> well, I'll try to unpack. I'm not caffeinated, so I'll try uh -oh. to unpack. <laughs> I mean, I, I may have to give me a cup of coffee. That's a, whoa, that's... Okay, so we're getting really philosophical, but also really grounded. That's great. Thank you for the question. Now I'm gonna so so immediately um, when you said that, like first of all, you said you know people you know people in layman's terms, open data is not just something you throw around because you know not everybody knows what that is. And then also one thing about techno sort of topian views of the world, it's a forgetting that not everybody has the same skill set, understanding, perspective, ability, facility or access. I have a patron and I go, yeah, just look it up on your cell phone. Well, yeah, I don't have a cell phone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or mm. I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to use it. Or there's a lot of privilege that attends this conversation, I think. And I put that peripherally, but it really is. And I don't mean to, you know, that's another word that can be thrown around too much. I, I feel in the wrong context, but in this mm. context, I feel like it's a crucial part of it. We're different. We're all different. And even when I said ability, that's something that can be learned. It's not about innate. It's about you can learn. You can learn any skill, really, um, if you put your mind to it. You can understand, contribute, um, create, you know, generate. So what you made me think of immediately is I have a good friend um, in Germany. Her lab researches something they're calling data poverty, actually. And what they're seeing is that a lot of um, folks in her, at least in her part of Germany, there's a huge immigrant population um, learning not only new culture, but new language and new ideas, new skills. And um, some of those individuals, many of whom are women, actually, and kids don't have access to a lot of people who are conventionally marginalized and excluded from technology and, and Internet knowledge, Internet skills. Um, are needing to learn even how to check email 
you know, and don't come fully equipped with like a, a Nokia, whatever. And, and that average people too, just like the average citizen doesn't have data savvy. They don't have data literacy. And so that raises a lot of questions. Like what is the purpose of a librarian then in this, in this setup? What are we doing? You know, I have, you know, a perspective. I, I don't, have all the answers. We're human. So we're not, we're not, you know, maybe partially divine, but the concern is more like, not that you're like a sage on the stage imparting your wisdom, but more like asking people, what can I help you with? Like at the core, like, what do you need me to help you with? And if I can't find it and I don't know, I can ask somebody else. Cause we're really good at asking questions. People forget that. Are you or the collective body of librarians obligated to embrace innovation, not just librarians, Does humanity carry that responsibility or can we choose our own speed, which we move from tradition to innovation? Oh, that's a great question. So obligated is a really interesting way to put it because I feel like the profession is so varied now that I wonder what, I mean, I would be really fascinated by just like a a panel on this or a discussion with a bunch of us, because because I can only speak to my own experience, right? But I, I think um, we're called on to do so many things at any given time, particularly the public librarians and the school librarians who have um, many more hats that they, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, this is not me throwing shade at the academic librarians. I come from that tradition myself. So, um, but there are so many needs with general populations um, that come with the job that you you can't know from one day to the next what you're going to need to do. And so we're part, you know, I, I think it's like shushing is part of it. Yeah, of course. But I feel like we could be encouraged to adapt more readily to the needs of the patrons, even though sometimes it's very frustrating and I get that, you know, and there's a lot of challenges that maybe we are not told about in library school. <laughs> I don't know if it's just me, but... I think we're called on to do a lot more now than just like um, doling out the books and keeping records and you know what I mean? I like library school. That's interesting. Library school. When you hear schools, you often just hear it, that term schooled in a general sense of universities and you know, you're going to college, but something tells me library school is a culture of its own. And that's interesting in itself. Boy, I'm sure we could talk a lot about that. All right, cool. (laughs) When we come back, Andy will tell us a little bit about critical information literacy. What is it? Why we should know it's there. Uh, Andy's got some interesting things to say about that. When we come back, this is the open library podcast. We'll be back right after this. Hi, I'm Nick, host of Open Libraries Podcast. Have you heard about Open Libraries Barcode Scanner? It lets you scan your favorite books from anywhere to see if they're at Open Library. And if you're like me, it'll come in handy if you want to organize or catalog your book collection at home. And get this, you can do it with just a snap from your phone or your computer. Check it out at openlibrary.org slash barcode scanner. That's openlibrary.org slash barcode scanner. Meanwhile, let's get back to the show. When you consider all things related to the library, there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, it's more than just a library card and bookshelves. In my email, 
I've got a draft, a list of things to explore about the world of libraries. One of them is critical information literacy. Andy, save me the trouble of searching Google and help us unpack that. Yeah, so critical information literacy is basically at its core, I think, the understand I'm, you know, again, I'm I'm water, I'm diluting it, but I, I like brass tacks to begin, um, begin at the beginning, right? Critical information literacy is basically the idea that information isn't born in a vacuum, that it's generated with social, socioeconomic, cultural, societal uh, attitudes, that it's not immune. There's no, because like a lot of times in science, they talk about neutral objectivity, particularly in um, like the positivist tradition or the quantitative tradition. And um, one of my favorite researchers, Donna Haraway, has talked about, and this is, I promise this is a tangent, but it's kind of related. She talks about how um, in science, there's no such thing as what she calls a God trick, where you have a neutral, dis dis detached person who's completely objective and free of any sort of bias or in informed, um, like, limits. And you can then, as the scientist, make pronouncements about what you study. And therefore, they're objective and completely rational. But that's not human beings. There's no such thing as pure objectivity. There's we just don't have it. Um, we can aspire to it, but I, I would argue that's not necessarily why we're here either. Um, and information literacy, in particular, because information is what is it? A data aggregate. Um, it's it's they call it groups of facts, but it's also emotions. It's also beliefs. You know, prejudice, history, like. It's not just one thing. And so critical information literacy tries to ask questions about not only am I reading, what am I reading, but like, or reading or viewing or watching or writing, talking about, but like, what is informing this conversation? For example, the conversation we're having now, what's informing it? Like, um, you know, is it the fact that I'm not caffeinated? <laughs> you know what I mean? Is that going to impact my response to you? Um, is that going to impact how you perceive me? you know, conversationally, um, the fact that I don't see you on the video chat, is that going to impact how you view my responses? Like literally not viewing me, but, but hearing me only like there's a lot. So, so basically, um, not only does this need a lot of caffeination, apparently the way I tell it, but critical information literacy is the acknowledgement that no information is free of its or, it, or of its origins. And that it's it's made collectively, not singularly. Like it's made in a world. It's made with people, and it's it's a living it's a living thing. It's organic. It's not sta there's no stasis. It's constantly changing, evolving. Um, I hate to use that term "living document," but when you see that term like this, you know, a lot of times you'll see like this is a living document and can be edited, changed. Information is a living thing. So it's going to be changeable, mutable, transferable, but also not free of mess mm. from humanity. <laughs> you know, like we can't, I don't feel we can't avoid it. Other people are going to say, look, it's just facts. And it's just like information is a data aggregate. And like, it's just what's in books and on the internet, like leave it alone. But I, I think if you're going to think critically, you're going to read discerningly, you're going to read um, or you're going to view mindfully you know and i again i'm using that term and i'm borrowing it for this but it's it's mind it's mindful consumption and mm. mindful creation of 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 um of data really i mean it it's and it's a it's a way that you synthesize data where you keep in mind like okay 
who wrote this? Who am I? And like, is it all the time? No. I mean, because we're human and we can't always, but it would be ideal if we could all read critically and think critically. And it means too, that there's crit in critical thinking, there's an idea called intellectual empathy. So intellectual empathy means that you can put someone in, in some, you can put yourself in someone else's shoes, that you can look at a perspective that's not your own and feel connected and understand it and even um, aspire to it or empathize with it or try to try to believe it, you know, uh, and credit it as, as human experience, even though it's not yours. So that is part of critical information literacy. Empathy, I find, is somewhat parenthetical to this, but it's a really crucial element of, of understanding that other perspectives exist, are valuable, and are necessary to live in the world. And he does the mindful consumption of content or mindful consumption of literacy make our world a better place? Or am I a better person by consuming content more mindfully? That's a great question. And, you know, when you're, when you asked me that, my mind immediately went to breaking bread at a table, like mindful consumption. I know that's being literal, <laughs> but like, you know, literally sitting down together at a table and consuming bread together, like, and eating a meal and um, sharing a space, you know what I mean? Like, like an intimate way of, of being with other people. And, mm. you know, it's, a, and we're social animals. So um, yeah, I think if I can imagine myself, you know, like, cause I definitely read books or watched movies and gone, you know, I like that fictional character or that memoir. Like I would love to sit down and have dinner with that person. Or, mm. you know, if I could have, you know, if I could sit down and we could have, I know it's, it's all, it's all food analogies cause I'm a foodie, but it's like, if we could break bread together, I have questions. Like I would want to know more about that person, that, that individual belief or that culture or, cause I think, um, it's, it's possible. I, I think it also could have the opposite effect where you could read something, view something, hear something and say, I don't want to hear anymore. You know, that's what people, people do say that, unfortunately. Mm. So the question is, if you mindfully consume something and you don't want to hear anymore, mm. how, how can you repurpose that so that it's still valuable and leaves you open to conversation? Even if you don't want to be at that point, can you, can you acknowledge that maybe Maybe later you can have a talk if that makes sense with yourself. <laughs> you know, it, it depends, and it depends on what it is, right? We're being really general. Mm -hmm. um, I would hope, you know, that mindful consumption can make us more willing to embrace other experiences, cultures, and experience and and knowledge that's not our own. Um, I don't know if that's always the result. I I mean, that's that's me being more like again brass tacks, but I I think it's you're losing a lot by not trying that, mm. in, in my opinion. In my, it's just my, again, it's just my opinion. I love it when you use the uh, foodie language. You talk about breaking bread. And as someone who graduated from culinary school, I, my ears just sort of perk up. And I think to myself, well, if I'm sitting at a table with someone and I eat a couple of bites of macaroni and cheese and I say, I don't like this. Well, well, keep in mind, I love macaroni and cheese, by the way. But I'm just <laughs> saying it as an example, if someone else sees my reaction and says, based on Nick's reaction, I'm not going to touch it. And it could very well be the dish that they just, it could be the comfort of their life. Consuming content mindfully just feels like a profound responsibility. Oh, that, thank you for the direction you've put that in. You made a really great point. Yeah, that there is a responsibility that you're not, you're not leading someone. 
in the sense that you're saying, well, this is, you know, this, but like, I'm, I know I put it to the books, but I'm showing my analog antecedents, right? Like, you know, that I'm a Gen Xer. So I'm immediately like, I'm pre slightly pre-digital, <laughs> but it's like, you want to read that book? Well, whatever. Like, it's not that good of fantasy fiction, whatever you, you know, it doesn't have to be something profound. It could just be like, the author has crappy themes or something, you know, that you're saying to this patron who has read a review and wants to read it, you know, and if I don't react well to this author, but it doesn't mean that everybody's going to feel the same. Yeah, that's a really huge responsibility. And you've kind of made it like, suddenly we're like Knights of the Round Table. <laughs> We've got to, we have this like strong, like, uh, it's an uh, obligation, but it's also like an occupational virtue. Like you, you need to not lean on people in that regard, but they're looking for your, your opinion. They're looking for your assessment. Maybe as librarians that we go between like being a recommendation system. Like I'm thinking of Amazon, you know, when you're shopping online and it's like, you know, people that bought this also bought this. So you sort of have to make an informed decision about where to direct them, but you also don't want to direct people away. Mm. Just be, you know, or it speaks to something like collection management. Like the, I know the open library, you know, is a collection and so when you're, when you're doing things like weeding or you're doing things like collection development and you're building a collection or you're thematically analyzing your, your collection, you know, are you buying stuff because you like it or because your, your patron base needs it? You know what I mean? Or are you weeding that stuff out because you don't agree with the content? Because that's really, I mean, we could talk about censorship for hours too, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and ethical, you know, the ethics around information. I mean, yeah, like you, you've certainly, <laughs> I, li I, like, I like how you think. Andy, do we need an extra seat at the table for algorithms, artificial intelligence, basically the machines? I mean, after all, they're a big part of how we are drawn to content or how we consume literacy and content, especially digital. That's a really great question. Yeah, so I knew of someone who actually, I don't remember, now to be, to be quite honest, I wanna, again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I think she got a, I think she got a grant, I wanna say it was a co-grant with another researcher to do something called like the ethics of algorithms or, you know, where they studied, and her, her background is in the researchers in information science. So, so it was kind of like librarian adjacent. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, so there was, I remember a few, this is some years ago, I remember a conversation we had about how a lot of times in computing, computer science, and I have, I have done research kind of in an adjacent field, um, human-computer interaction. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times what will happen is the engineers will want to build something like AI or machine learning or whatever, and the designers will say, I'll dream it, the engineers will build it, and then the user studies will be like, I don't understand the interface, or the software, if it's hardware, it's one thing. If it's software, it's not intuiting the needs of the user, you know, or maybe there's an accessibility issue <laughs> or a usability issue. So I think that designful, you know, even designing of those things, AI and um, algorithms should be mindful from the beginning, you know, but, but like a lot of times engineers just want to build something. They don't want to hear that. Or the designers just want to dream it. They don't want limits. <laughs> And they're not thinking of the user, um, but us, like the librarians, like we think of users. We are the users, but we also think of them as the main, core, like the core of it. Yeah. So AI and and uh, algorithms, there's, I mean, we could talk till the cows come home about the ethics around those two things and how there's been a lot of criticism. 
around technology in general, but in particular those two things and, and how they lack ethics and they haven't caught up to human, the potential for human empathy and, uh, and reason, you yeah. know? Wow, thank you for sharing that. Andy, I'm a, I appreciate the depth that you've taken this conversation. Me too. <laughs> to our listeners, you can learn more about the work Open Library is doing by visiting www.openlibrary.org. You can also follow or share your comments about our podcast conversations on Twitter or on Spotify in iTunes. Until the next time, happy reading.